Well, good morning. We're so glad to have you here at Reston Bible Church. We are starting a series in the book of James today. So if you want to turn to James chapter 1, if you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, uh, we'd love for you to turn there. Uh, we are going to be in a series for about 15 weeks. There is so much. We are going to suck them every ounce out of this book. Uh, before we get started, though, I want to say a prayer uh, for the earthquake victims in uh, Turkey and Syria. It is unbel- it's incomprehensible what's happening over there. 25,000 people have lost their lives. They're still uncovering people from the rubble, finding people alive. And it's just, you know, we know that these kind of things are going to happen. The Bible tells us that the earth groans. Uh, Romans 8, it's just, it's the way it is. And we're asking the Lord to intervene. Father, we pray. For the people in that part of the world, so much tragedy, so much loss. God, we pray that by your spirit, you would intervene. We ask for organizations like the Red Cross and Samaritan's Purse and others who will uh, jump to the ready in all of this, as they do with the resources of your people. Uh, We pray, Lord God, that you would bring the gospel into that tragedy and that many, 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 Lord, would consider the things of Christ in their moment of desperation. We do pray that more and more people would be discovered alive under that rubble and that they would not give up and that they would keep digging, Lord. Father, we pray you bless our time now. Help us to be mindful of so many others who have so much less. And uh, God, as we study your word through the book of James, give us all that we need, we pray in your great name. Amen. Well, James is very likely to be the very first book written in the New Testament. Many people don't understand that even the Gospels were written later. Kind of, we think in chron- you know, chronological order. Surely the Gospels were written first. They were not. Uh, James was written in uh, the early 40s or so. If Jesus ascended into heaven in the early 30s, this is about 10 years later. Uh, we believe very firmly that James was the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, and that he penned this book to the early church, overwhelmingly Jewish. One of the things we're going to discover as we walk through the book is that many, many passages in this book are very reflective of the Sermon on the Mount. And when we, when we see that, we're going to make that connection for you and uh, see how, how G- James was very connected to the teachings of Jesus. And uh, we're going to start in James chapter 1. Verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus, to the 12 tribes. Again, remember that the church at this point was almost exclusively Jewish. There was still a very Jewish filter through which the uh, uh, disciples were kind of seeing this whole process. The expansion into the, the Gentile world didn't really come in full measure until Paul started his missionary journeys in 45 AD, which is just shortly after this book was written. It says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now we know that the dispersion started pretty early on. Uh, If we go to Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen, one of the appointed deacons, the first passage where the Bible talks about deacons, those who serve the people. Where Stephen ended up giving a sermon, he kind of was a bit of a punch in the nose to the religious establishment, and he ended up getting stoned to death. Paul was there approving of that, it says. In Acts chapter 9, Paul uh, comes to faith in Christ. But during that interim gap, the, the, the persecution of the church really, really ratcheted up. Paul comes to faith in 
uh, Acts 9. He goes into Arabia, we understand, from Galatians. Galatians 1.19 tells us that when he came, finally came to Jerusalem, that he didn't see any of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother, it says in Galatians 119. And so the, the, the persecution even ramped up further in Acts chapter 12, uh, where King Herod, he ends up martyring James, the brother of John. Remember, there's two disciples, the sons of thunder, James and John. Well, James ends up being killed by Herod in, uh, in Acts chapter 12. And this really kicks up yet again, uh, the persecution. And so the church very early on is beginning to be scattered around the region. And we find out that James writes this very first letter to a very persecuted, struggling, poor, impoverished church that has been scattered with the message through a series of little sermonettes. So much of James are these little chunks, just a few verses and then a few more verses that, that handle radically different topics. The message to all of them in each one of those is hang in there, hang in there, hang in there. We're going to see that throughout the entire book. So our verses, uh, okay, uh, missed, missed Acts 8 1. So here's this, um, the support for what I just said. And Saul approved of his execution, that means Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And kind of off they went. And took the gospel with them, but were often again very, very persecuted. Now, the book of James has 108 verses. There are 54 imperatives in this book. It's extremely concise, no lengthy sections. It's not heavily theological per se. It's heavily practical. It's live this way. Live this way. It's a call to radical living in difficulty under persecution and challenges. There's no clear organizational structure. Again, just these little mini sermons. The moral imperatives of this book are as needed today as they were in the first century. We need in our time, in our day, in our culture, a radical message of moral and ethical obedience to God. We know that salvation is by grace through faith alone. But we also know in the Bible then that we ha when we have a genuine faith, that gets lived out radically through radical obedience. On January 1st, 1990, President Vaclav Havel of Czechoslovakia addressed his nation. It was only weeks after 40 years of communism fell. Two days earlier, Havel had been elected president by a parliament still dominated largely by communists. Here's what he has to say and see if we can re relate a couple of decades later. We live in a contaminated moral environment, he said. We learn not to believe anything, to ignore each other, to care only for ourselves. Concepts such as love, friendship, compassion, humility, and forgiveness lost their depth and dimensions. And for many of us, they came to represent only psychological peculiarities or to resemble long-lost greetings from ancient times. When I talk about contaminated moral atmosphere, I am talking about all of us. Why do I say this? 
It would be quite unreasonable to understand the sad, sad legacy of the last 40 years as something alien, something bequeathed to us by a distant relative. On the contrary, we must accept this legacy as a sin we committed against ourselves. The call to the church of Jesus is to live differently in a culture that wants us to transfer this moral compromise amongst ourselves and out into the world. The call of James is to a living faith, not a dead faith, not an assent to certain theological truths, but an embracing of a worldview that is based in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is then radically lived out in a counterculture sort of way. And sometimes the counterculture is within our own four walls. This is the exact climate that was in the first century in Czechoslovakia in our quote, and I believe in America today moral imperatives about how it is that we are to live. The first imperative, the first topic, the first little mini sermon, if you will, is found in James chapter one, verses two through four. And what I have, want to say to you about this is I gave this sermon as the very first sermon that I preached here at Reston Bible Church on July 9th of 2017. Now, almost six years later, if you feel that a second sermon in such a time span is a little much on suffering, you're free to leave if you would like. Without any condemnation, I will not heckle you from the stage. However, I do believe that in our current context, we cannot get enough encouragement about how it is that we are to live in life's struggles. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Father, I thank you for these few short verses. As we kick off this series, I pray. Lord God, that you would help us to take seriously the encouragement, the conviction, the challenge to live rightly in a culture that is drawing us on every turn to live counter to your word. I pray, Lord God, that we would show our faith, that which we claim about Jesus Christ in our lives would be shown to be true and living and effective as an outgrowth of the commitment that we have made to you. Lord, as we talk about a very challenging topic today, that of suffering and difficulty, I pray that you would bless us, lead us, guide us. And may we walk out of here today with a different spirit and a different attitude and different behavior because we've been here today. We pray in your name. Amen. There are few things as universal in this life than suffering. Every single human being will face suffering of some kind in their own journey, some of us more than others. In my own life, if I were to only recount my own exposure and experiences through the loss of loved ones and people that I cared about, let alone all of the other things, the magnitude would be great. I have lost and buried people as a pastor to cancer. 
I've buried babies who were stillborn. I've buried young adults who overdosed on drugs, who committed suicide. I have buried very close friends who were victims of murder and of vehicular manslaughter. I know here at Reston Bible Church over the years there have been tragic deaths. There have been difficult staff departures. And that doesn't even get to the personal issues of marital strife, unemployment, marital challenges, and prodigal children. Every single one of us will face challenges in our lives that often seem insurmountable. German theologian Helmut Thielich, who lived from 1908 to 1986, that 1986 date is important as we read this, he toured America visiting churches across the country. When he returned home, he was asked what he saw as the greatest defect among American Christians. His reply caught the questioner off guard. They have an inadequate view of suffering. An inadequate view of suffering. And as you leave here today, what the challenge for you is, this is the challenge for each of us today. What is your theology of suffering? What do you believe about it? What do you believe about where it fits in our lives? Why does it occur? What are we to do with it? It is universal. There is no greater question in our day that needs to primarily be answered in, a, in order for us to live effective lives in front of other believers and in front of an onlooking world than how it is that we are going to handle and respond to suffering in our lives. Because we have a crummy theology as a people in America about this. It's important for you and for me to understand that other people in different times in history, in other parts of the world, have a much more effective view of suffering than we do. Last week, Aaron Osborne preached a message. He spoke about his trip to Haiti, just south of us, in a third world nation, with tragedy everywhere, unstable government, death, starvation, where Pastor Francois, in face of great difficulty, routinely says, that is life. This world is not our home. And that is not an American sentiment. It's not our first response to difficulty. More than not, even in the church, our first response is to look to heaven with a clenched fist, shaking it at God, asking, why are you doing this to me? And so the notion, count it all joy, when you face trials of many kinds, we're like, what? Like, who does that? A lot of people do that. Just not a lot of Americans do that. <laughs> and the church of Jesus here needs to develop a robust theology that leads to an effective life of how we respond to the challenges that will inevitably come. There are five steps in this passage. And we are going to start at the back and we're going to work forward. We're going to start with God's end game and then we're going to land on, well, why should we consider it all joy? We're going to explain that backwards to forwards. And then we're going to talk about three encouragements as we leave here today about how I take this with me into my afternoon and my week ahead of me. 
The first piece in understanding and having a theology of suffering is understanding God's endgame. What is God all about in our suffering? And number one, it is that we would be perfect and complete, not lacking in anything. The truth of the matter is that our maturity that reflects Christ's likeness is God's goal for us in this life. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, you were positionally found righteous in Christ. It's called positional salvation justification. Then we launch out on a process, a journey. It's the second piece of salvation, if you will. It's called sanctification. That journey whereby God chisels away the pieces of us that are not reflective of him. Like a, like a block of marble where the sculptor has in his mind an outcome, this beautiful sculpture, and he starts chipping away. And sometimes, well, it's a little painful or maybe a lot painful. Into Christ-likeness, whereby at the end of time, the third piece of our salvation, which is glorification, will have its full measure. You say, well, what, about, what about God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life? What about that? That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. God does love you. He does have a wonderful plan for you. It just isn't going to feel like it sometimes. Because God's idea of a wonderful plan and our idea of a wonderful plan aren't the same. Let me break it to you. God's plan is not to make you happy. I don't like that. I want God to make me happy. And you understand that the environment in America over the last 50 years has not historically been hostile to the gospel. It's becoming that way, but it hasn't historically been that way. It's just been largely indifferent. The church has appealed, therefore, to people on the basis of what Jesus will do for them. And this is very, very important. You've heard me say this before. I am going to say it again. The evangelical church in America over the last 50 years has preached a faulty gospel. We have preached a person-centered gospel, not a Jesus-centered gospel. The seeker church being seeker-sensitive, and I was a part of that movement for many years. The goal is to be attractional, to invite people in, but what it often became was a bait and switch. We're going to invite you in the door and try to help you understand what Jesus is going to give you when you accept him, forgetting the fact that sometimes God requires things of us when we follow him. We don't tell them that part. That's not very attractive. What's attractive is that Jesus is going to make me happy. We may not say those words. But functionally, that's what's happened in many churches. And then what happens is bad things. And then people walk away from the faith that they committed to because Christianity didn't work for me. What they mean by that is God didn't do what I wanted him to do. The problem is the gospel never promised that to begin with. God does love us. It's always better with him. Always. But it doesn't mean that it's easy. We're going to see some of God's promises as we move forward today. God's goal is conformity to Christ. It's conformity to Christ. And if you, we do not understand that as God's endgame, trials will never make sense to us. They will never make sense. It will always feel like God is being mean. Romans 8, 28 and 29. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Yay, I like that. That's really, that's really awesome. That sounds so sweet. But then there's verse 29. We stop at verse 28. We need to go on to verse 29. Which says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his son. And can I just say to you that no one ever became mature apart from difficulty in life. Ever. Ever. You don't wake up, you don't read something and then wake up the next day and go, bring, I'm mature. It doesn't work that way. It's impossible it means that we are to be perfect, it says, and complete. That word for perfect means without blemish. It's a moral quality of wholeness. It's not perfect in the way you and I think of perfect, as in sinless perfection. That's not what this means. The word complete ha is having all the necessary qualities. We are being transformed into the qualities of Jesus. The problem is, is that most of us, myself included, are less mature than we like to think that we are. We are. You know, you've heard me say from the stage before that the average human brain is not fully mature until sometime between 25 and 30. And the only smart people on the planet are rental car de dealers who will not rent a car to anybody under 25. There's a lot of things we shouldn't allow anybody under 25 to do. And they're the only smart ones in the bunch. And my, I've had this conversation with my son, Adam, several times during the time of his life. And periodically when I get on him for doing something stupid, forgive me, but that's what it is. There's no way around it. It's just stupid sometimes. We all do stupid things. And he goes, Dad, it's a frontal lobe thing. <laughs> and it is. And the truth of the matter is that we all, all are battling on a journey of maturity to conformity to Christ. Well, if conformity to Christ, if maturity is the end game, if that's God's goal, what is the building block underneath that develops maturity? It is steadfastness. The word for steadfastness is hypermone, and it means patient endurance. What it means is to remain under the pressure and to persevere and move forward. It means to not step out from underneath the weight, but to endure under the weight. Mature people are mature because of staying power. 1 Corinthians 9 verses 24 through 27 say, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. That is the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we and imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You know what mature people do? They have a goal. They have an, a destination. And today they make hard decisions that will get them to that destination. Mature people, successful people in life... Do not look at where they want to go and then when they face hard decisions today that help them get there, cave. I don't feel like doing that today. Now we've all done that. And when we say, I don't really feel like it today. And so I fail to implement 
the process, engage the process that I need to stay engaged with in order to reach my goal. When I fail to do that, I evidence a lack of maturity. Because mature people, they make hard decisions today for the outcome that they want later. It's a principle of life for each of us as well as for people of God in the journey toward Christ-likeness. In 2010, my wife ran the Army 10-miler. It's important to understand that my wife is not a runner. She actually hates running. But it was a decision that she made and she was going to do it. And one of her best friends at the time, Michelle Castillo, who we lost to murder in 2014, during her memorial service, my wife shared the story of the two of them running the Army 10-miler together. And Michelle, she was a long-distance runner. And as they ran for 10 long, agonizing miles... Michelle kept quoting 1 Corinthians 9 in the ear of my wife as they ran. Don't you know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. And then with emphasis, run in such a way as to get the prize for 10 miles. Because endurance in the midst of the challenge is what brings the desired outcome in this case is maturity in Christ. No one ever, ever became mature without perseverance in difficulty. Well, if the goal of the, or the outcome is maturity in Christ and the building block underneath of it is steadfastness or perseverance, what is it that helps us build perseverance or steadfastness? Well, number three, it's the testing of our faith. It's the testing of our faith. The word is dokimian. And it means not being fake. It means not a counterfeit. It is genuine. A belief that is not tested is simply a statement with unconfirmed substance. I can say I believe anything. But until that belief is put to the test, I'm not even sure that I know that what I believe is what I actually believe. When that belief is put to the test and has proven to be genuine through perseverance, then I am certain that what I say I believe is what I actually believe. I don't know if you saw the mo series of movies called God's Not Dead. I do recommend them to you. They are excellent. In movie number one, there's a college student by the name of Josh Wheaton who walks into a college class, and the professor says that everyone needs to, if you write down God is dead and sign it sign the paper and turn it in, you'll get an A in the class. If you're not willing to say God is dead, you don't agree with that, then you have to stand up against the professor in a debate to substantiate your position that God is alive. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, he felt compelled, I have to do this. It was terrifying to him to go up against a college professor to provide arguments for the existence of his belief in God. And I will tell you, that on March 13th, to Monday night, right here in this room, our very own Scott Tomlinson, who teaches Solid Ground at the 9 o'clock hour, will be debating a man by the name of John W. Loftus. Look it up. He's a prominent atheist. He has several seminary degrees. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. He has rejected the faith and has become an atheist who debates prominent apologists around the country. 
and we'll be right here. Really encourage you to come. But the reality is that this notion, it, it denotes tested in battle and proven to be reliable. And the question is, is your faith, is my faith, has it been tested in the battle and proven to be true? That's perseverance unto maturity. In 1943, during World War II, Louis Zamperini was serving as a bombardier in the conflict. His plane went down and he floated for 47 days on the ocean. He was picked up by the Japanese. His story is depicted in the 2014 movie, Unbroken. In this movie, he's in a concentration camp and he is pitted against Corporal Mutashiro Watanabe, who had it out for Louis. It was a constant test over and over and over again. Beatings and all kinds of horror. There's one particular scene where Louis is forced to hold a wooden beam over his head, which is kind of the, the image that is depicted that kind of classifies the movie. The soldier is told that if he drops that beam in his exhaustion, he is to be shot. And under enormous testing and un unbelievable exhaustion, he held that beam over his head, which only produced more beatings from Watanabe. During his journey, he told God that if he got him out of that concentration camp, he would follow him all the days of his life. He did indeed get out of the concentration camp and he did indeed follow Jesus all the rest of his life. And during his journey, he went back, he went to Japan and he sought out those who were his captors and he forgave them. And the only one who wouldn't meet with him was Watanabe refused to meet with him and accept his forgiveness. There is a man whose faith was tested. He persevered and moved on to maturity. James 1.12 says, Blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That's the glorification part. So if maturity is the goal, and it comes through steadfastness, and if steadfastness is developed through testing, what is it that provides the test? Step number four in our journey through these few verses. It's trials of various kinds. Trials are what create the test under which we become persevering or steadfast that develops maturity. The word for trial is distresses of any kind, really at any level. It's any stress, any difficulty that we face qualifies as a trial of various kinds. The word is periosmois, and it means to examine closely. It's to put through the rigors of a test. It's the trial that was the test to Abraham's faith muscle, believing that God would provide for them a son when they were way too old. Genesis chapter 12. It was the trial that tested Joseph's faith muscle, causing him to believe God when he was sitting in an Egyptian dungeon for a crime he did not commit in Genesis 39. It's the trial that tested Paul's faith muscle when in Acts chapter 20, he said this, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprison, imprisonment and afflictions await me there. He's like, I don't know what's going to happen to me, except prison and probably beatings, like, what, what do you mean you don't know what's going to happen there? 
then he goes on to say this, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Oh my. Am I able to say, I'm gonna go to a place and I know because the spirit has already told it to me in my heart that bad things await me. Off I go. But you know what? I really don't count my life as a whole lot. The only thing I hope for is that I would fulfill the mission about which God has placed me on this earth. Is that your sentiment today? Is that mine? Do I care less about my physical life than I do that whatever is I face is part of God's calling and that I would fulfill the mission that God has given me? If I believe that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life, I'm not going to Jerusalem when I know that what awaits me there is bad. If I believe that maturity is God's outcome for me and that life's struggles are a process along the way toward conformity to Christ, then go to Jerusalem I will. Only if God calls me to do it. It's the trial that tested Elizabeth Elliot's faith muscle, causing her to return to the Harani tribe of Ecuador after they killed her husband and four other missionaries. In 1956, Jim Elliot and four of his companions, just shy of his 30th birthday, were killed by the Harani Indians. And over a course of time, Elizabeth Elliot chose to respond to the call of God in the sentiment of the Apostle Paul that says, I account my life of anything of any value, nor as precious to myself, I only, only that I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord. And she went. And that tribe is largely made up of followers of Jesus today in part because she went back to the people who murdered her husband. Unbelievable for many of us today to consider. Testing coupled with the willingness to abide, to persevere, to be steadfast brings about the maturity, the Christ-likeness, the reflection of Jesus, which is God's ultimate outcome for us. Oh, how we have become, myself included, an entitled generation, unaccustomed to embracing anything that costs us. But when I understand that God's goal is maturity and that steadfastness is the building block under that, that when my faith is tested by trials, and when I keep all of that in mind, and only when I keep all of that in mind can I even consider what it might mean to consider this trial with joy, which is our fifth and final point. Count it all joy. Consider it all joy. The word for all is the word for pure. It's full capacity. It's a full measure of joy. Now, joy here is not like the, woohoo, my life is awful. Isn't this great? It's not that. It's a deep, abiding sense of understanding of the broader picture. And here it is, that dispels gloom. That dispels gloom. 
When I look at the challenges of my life, I can, as a follower of Jesus Christ, when I look to God's endgame and understand the steadfastness under the trial that is provided by tests, when I keep all of that in perspective, the natural human gloom that comes through difficulties can be dispelled. I don't rejoice for the trial. I'm not excited that that event happened. What I, what I can be joyful in is in the trial for the transformation that God is going to bring. 2 Corinthians 4 says, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Do you ever feel that way? I'm like, as I get older, I'm like, whoa, this shell is just such an irritation. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Remember who's talking right now. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, for this light momentary affliction. What? If there was one human being on the planet at this time who had anything but light and momentary afflictions, from shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonments and on and on and on it goes, it was the Apostle Paul. Yet in the grand scheme of things, he calls all of that light and momentary in preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, you understand as a follower of Jesus that the test that you are in right now, the challenge that you are facing, as you endure under it, it is building for you a weight of glory that is to come. Do not lose sight of that. That is the reward. It's the glorification, the part three of our salvation. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And the greatest problem with the things seen is that they are indeed seen. And they are right in our face. The challenges that we face are way too seen. They are right there, all up in our grill. We, can't, we have such a difficult time looking to the things that are unseen. The joy that's available to us comes only when we understand that the pathway to Christ-likeness and the weight of glory that awaits us on the other side is only through the perseverance in life's challenges. What is your theology of suffering? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have God's guarantee that he is in the process of transforming you into the image of Christ. That is your inheritance. You will look like Jesus. Like it or not, you're gonna look like him. And sometimes I don't want that maturing process that's gonna make it, me look like him. I'm happy with my level of maturity. But there's a second promise. Because his primary tool for transformation is suffering, you have another guarantee that any and all pain you experience in this life, he can and he will redeem for his purposes. You may not understand why this is happening. You may not understand the point of it, why God, but he is using it for his glory and for your transformation because he would rather transform you through the pain than simply take your pain away. Fanny Crosby, she lived from 1820 to 1915. 
Many of the hymns that you are aware of, she's written. She wrote over 8,000 hymns. Hymns like Blessed Assurance, To God Be the Glory. What you may not know about Fanny Crosby is at the age of six weeks, through a medical challenge, she was rendered blind. A one-time, once a well-intentioned minister remarked to her, I think it is a great pity that the master, when he showered so many gifts upon you, did not give you sight. Do you know, replied Fanny, if at birth I had been able to make one petition to my creator, it would have been that I should be born blind. Why? Asked the surprised minister. Because when I get to heaven, the first sight that I shall ever gladden, the first sight that shall ever gladden my eyes will be that of my Savior. Is that remarkable? There are people in different places, in different times in history, whose theology of suffering allows them in their strength, in their testing that brings perseverance unto maturity, they recognize what God is doing. James 1, verses 2 through 4, our verses for today. And then we're going to get to our three takeaways. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And you say, Pastor, this is great. Uh, This is uh, uh, so awesome. You're doing a great job up there. But I, I, how? How do I do this? You know, like when I walk out of here today and walk into my world tomorrow and something bad happens, how do I do this? Three thoughts as we walk out of the doors today. Number one, embrace the truth that your life is not your own. If you were a follower of Jesus Christ, when you met Jesus Christ, you made a deal. The deal was that you were gonna get salvation. The other part of the deal that he was gonna get your life. Your life is not yours if you are a follower of Jesus. That's scary to us. Can I really trust God? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. It goes on to say, therefore, honor God with your body. Make wise, obedient decisions about your life. Can I just say, our lives are always better when he is in control. We live in illusion that we are actually in control of our lives because we control enough of our own lives. We control enough of what will happen today, what we're going to have for lunch and what we're going to do tomorrow. And most of the time, those things actually happen that we actually believe that we're in control. And then when we're not, when it's revealed how shallow our control can run sometimes, we get frustrated. We shake our fist at heaven. And we ask God, what in the world are you doing with my life? And we make a false assumption that my life is mine as a follower of Christ. And the best thing that I can do in order to embrace God's outcome and the process along the way towards God's outcome of maturity is to recognize that he is in control of my life and that's the deal that I made. And it is better that way. In Job chapter one, verses 20 and 21, after Job lost everything, he says then, Job, it says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. I want to challenge you, and I'm going to take this challenge to heart as well, that the next time something happens that is painful, 
that is unexpected. That instead of asking God why, that we would drop to our knees and we would worship. God, I don't understand. God, this hurts. God, this is hard. But I'm gonna choose in this moment to lift you up because my life is not my own. It belongs to you. Belongs to you. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away and here's the worship part. Blessed be the name of the Lord in the midst of his tragedy. Years ago, I received an e-newsletter from Family Life Ministries about a family. The gentleman is Rob Tittle. He was a staff member at Family Life. He and his wife Carrie had nine children. They lived together in Arkansas. And one afternoon, the sirens were blaring and a tornado was bearing down on their house. Rob gathered his family under the steps. He was in the process of gathering his finer, final two children when the tornado hit their home. Rob and two of those children were lost. This is the foundation of their house. This is what was left. A short time later, their 19-year-old daughter, their 19-year-old daughter posted this on Facebook. My mom and, and my six brothers and sisters are all right. We have lost three of our family, dad, Tori, and Rebecca. Prayers would be appreciated. The house is gone, stripped from the foundation. And then she quotes Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How in the world can a 19-year-old young woman in the midst of unthinkable tragedy and loss quote the book of Job and worship and give honor back to the living God? I will tell you how. That she grew up in a family that had a healthy, solid theology of suffering. That's how. She grew up understanding that God's end game is maturity and that steadfastness which is developed through trials that bring that are that are testing our faith is what brings that maturity to Christ likeness number one embrace the truth that your life is not your own number two never ever 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 struggle alone stay engaged don't retreat don't hide don't become a recluse. Steadfastness does not equal immediate and passive acceptance. We all get angry with God. We all struggle with God. Abraham struggled with God. Jacob literally wrestled with God at the Jabbok River. Peter struggled with God. Paul struggled with God. And Jesus struggled with God in the garden. And we are to bear one another's burdens. And in doing so, we will fulfill the law of Christ. And we need to allow other people to come around us in our burdens, in our struggles, as we seek to walk faithfully, keeping our eyes fixed on God's end game. In the moment of our most serious tragic loss, several years ago when my wife's friend was murdered, Someone recommended a book to us, and I recommend it to you. It's written by a guy by the name of Jerry Sitzer. 
The book is called A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss. Jerry was driving along in his, in his van. In his car, he had his wife, his four children, and his mother. They were hit head on by a drunk driver. And in one moment, he lost three generations. He lost his mother, his wife, and one of his daughters. And he became a single father of three. And over this journey, he wrote this book. He says many profound things, but... Here's a couple of them. He says, though I experienced death, I also experienced life in ways that I never thought possible before. Not after the darkness, as you might expect, but in the darkness. I did not go through pain and come out the other side. Instead, I lived in it. I found within that pain the grace to survive and to eventually grow. I did not get over the loss of my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life. This is so profound. Like soil receives decaying matter until it became part of who I am. Sorrow took up permanent residence in my soul and enlarged it. I learned gradually that the deeper we plunge into suffering, the deeper we can enter into a new and different life, a life no worse than before and sometimes better. A willingness to face the loss and to enter into the darkness is the first step we must take. Like all first steps, it is probably the most difficult and takes the most time. And then he goes on to say this. Recovery is a misleading and empty expectation for those who experience catastrophic loss. We recover from broken limbs, not amputations. Catastrophic loss, by definition, precludes recovery. It will transform us or destroy us, but it will never leave us the same. The choice is up to us. As we embrace the journey of challenge that God has allowed into our lives to bring us to the place of maturity, as our faith is tested through trial, we persevere unto God's final outcome. Third and finally, number one, your life is not your own. Number two, never struggle alone. Number three, don't linger on the why. Don't linger on the why. The first question that you and I tend to ask in moments of difficulty as Americans, not as Christians, as Americans is why. You need to understand that this is not the first question that other people in other cultures and in other times in history ask first. People who are on the journey toward maturity, who understand what God is doing through the difficulties of life that inevitably come, tend to ask, what? God, what are you doing? What is it that I should be doing in response? How do you want me to move forward? Here's this difficult news. God rarely feels obligated to answer our why question. He will always answer our what and how questions over the course of time. We may never fully understand why. And if we are stuck on the why, we will often stay stuck. When Jesus from the garden cried out in Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was in a moment of human existential crisis where the father, in ways that we do not understand, literally turned his back on Jesus Christ as he bore the weight of sin. And you must understand 
that as a follower of Jesus Christ, because God turned his back on Jesus, he will never turn his back on you. Ever. Ever. Jesus' why (laughs) was set in the context of the enormity of the sin of the world on his shoulders. Our why is generally set in the context of our anger toward God for what he has allowed to happen in my life when I lose sight of the fact that my life is his life. Does that make sense? So lingering on the why is unhelpful. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ here today, the challenge for you and for me is to understand and develop a healthy theology of suffering. You are going to suffer with or without Jesus. It is always better to suffer with him because when you do, you are guaranteed that that suffering will be transformed into part of your journey to conformity to Christ. It's something you can take to the bank. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you do not yet have that guarantee. Suffering in the life of an unbeliever is just a consequence of the awfulness of this life. And there is no guarantee that it's being transformed into anything that's helpful and productive for you. But when you accept Jesus' payment on the cross, he shifts you from one realm into another and suddenly everything that's happening has meaning. And many, many people come to faith in Jesus Christ as a foundation of suffering. I did. I did. When my life, when I came to the end of me and life made no sense and I was ready to end my own life, that's when I understood Jesus. And that's when pain began to make sense for me. And growing up over the last 45 years as a follower of Jesus Christ, I too have struggled with the messages of this world that have tempted me to shake my fist at God when I'm angry and to ask why in, an, in, in, in excess and blame God for my difficulties. And I want to challenge all of us today that the foundation of our journey and an understanding of a theology of suffering is foundational for moving forward in so many areas of our life and being the person that we need to be for those who love Jesus, who do, who do not love Jesus in the world. And when we do that, when we show them, they, be, they have see Jesus in us in a different sort of way. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the message of James. Lord God, that suffering, that struggles are a part of a test that produces perseverance that we might be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Lord God, because of that, we can live with a demeanor that dispels that dispels gloom. And Father, for any here today who do not know Jesus as their personal savior, who have never accepted his payment on the cross, who are struggling to make sense of their difficulty, Father, I pray that they would first do business with you to accept Jesus' payment on the cross for them, give their life to you in exchange, and begin a journey of conformity into the image of Christ, maturity, that we might be mature and complete not lacking in anything. We love you, Lord, we pray in your great name. Amen.